Have you ever seen some idiot at the crag going out there free, soloing, grabbing onto the rock with only his fingers and toes, and he's walking around the base and he looks completely fucking lost? He asks you, hey, what's the name of this root over here? Oh, okay, cool, thanks. And then he just starts climbing it. You realize this guy is climbing on-site, free solo. What in the hell is that idiot thinking? Well, you're in the right place, my friends, because this idiot is about to tell you exactly what he was thinking on the single most intense on-site solo and single most intense experience of my entire life. I have this saying, life is like an on-site solo. You only get one chance. You can't see far ahead. You don't know what's coming next. And you don't have much choice other than to make it work. But the task at hand on this particular day actually was an on-site solo. And the next move seemed irreversible. As per the rules of on-site climbing, I'd never been up here before and hadn't received any beta on the moves. Lohan, respecting my wishes, hadn't even told me where the crux was. So I had no idea if this even was the crux. These might not be the hardest moves. Maybe, just maybe, there was something harder waiting above. And if that were the case... I'd be completely committed. No way up. No way down. Just a man trapped in limbo, neither alive nor dead. Like Schrodinger's climber, waiting to open the box and either unlock the crux or fall to my death. So I backed out immediately to contemplate life, lest I wind up committed beyond my ability. But I didn't go all the way down to the ground. No, I wasn't giving up yet. But that's the fear, mind you. Biting off more than you can chew. With no way out. And thus began the nine most intense minutes of my life. On-site soloing 12A? Who in the fuck did I think I was? Hey folks, we're going to take a break to get into real life now. So uh, I'm sitting up here in the frozen hoth of uh, Chicago. We just had negative 25 degrees and, you know, honestly, I'll take negative 25 over 125 any day. Still not regretting my decision to move up here. So, uh, yeah, what's going on in my life? 
Not much. Downloads of the show are ticking upward, even though uh, probably 50% of them are me. Um, but I'm feeling pretty satisfied about this whole thing still. It's really igniting my fire for guitar again in an exciting way as I try to figure out how to noodle and make my own segues on this show just for the uh, sheer fun of it. And yeah, so that's that's a blast. And fuck it. Uh, you know, take the show, make sure you've subscribed if you haven't, and share the show. Send it to some friends. You know, let's get the mojo spreading, get the word out there. Have some other, uh, you know, get some entertainment for other people off your uh, favorite friendly idiot. Well, um, not much going on here. Uh, job is being jobby. I've actually had a lot to do lately, and, um... When I was on my lunch break, one of my students, his company sent him here with no laptop. So I rushed home to grab him one of mine, and I rushed back. And I rushed back a little bit too fast. Yeah, according to the police, that is. So they gave me a ticket for doing 70 and a 45, allegedly. Things are still pending here, allegedly. And, um... When he pulled me over, he informed me that my insurance was expired. Apparently, there had been a problem with my auto pay. And apparently, that means they had to tow my car. And that wasn't bad enough. He uh, informed me that my license was coming up as suspended, which was a whole lot of fucking news to me. So, that sucks, and I'm working through it. Apparently, no government bureau is open to answer your questions on a weekend, so I still have no idea why my license is suspended. Uh, As y'all heard in a previous episode, I had that period where I went to 26 states in the space of 18 months while I was traveling for work, so... Apparently, Big Brother has lost track of exactly where the fuck I live, and they couldn't figure out how to send me a notification of the fact that I was in trouble. So I had to learn it all the hard way. Hmm. Learning shit the hard way. Learn it the hard way, the Austin Howell story. Maybe that'll be the subtitle of my autobiography. Blech. Gross. Well, anyway, uh, back to the grindstone, training, all that stuff. And I picked up a new guitar recently to uh, try and fill out the sound on these segues. It's a six-string bass guitar. And I'm really having a lot of fun with it. So let's go ahead and take a six-string bass guitar break now. Kind of a little pick-me-up to... uh, Help me forget my legal troubles. And then we'll launch into today's story from there. Thanks for listening, y'all. Share the show. Tell people. Ready, set, rock.
many years ago, I was the foreman on a cell tower crew, and my nickname was The Professor. At this point, I wore it proudly, and I was new in the industry. Being new in the industry and having the role of foreman, uh, that did, and still does, chafe at folks who have more experience than I. But I suppose that's why I'm The Professor. Not because of what I know, but because of what I can figure out and what I can teach. The more veteran climbers were reluctant to listen to me. Their way was the hard way. They believed in treating the new kids roughly, like they were trying to chase them off. Almost a hazing ritual, they made them earn their way on a crew. Not surprisingly, they threatened a mutiny. So the company man restructured. He put all the old crusties together on their own crew and gave me a team of entirely green hands. The new guys were easy to learn, eager to learn, and since I was keen to teach, they respected me. They'd do anything I asked because they knew that I'd climb up there and do it myself if they didn't know how, or if they didn't feel safe. I'd never ask them to do anything that I wouldn't. I'd take on the riskiest jobs whenever they came up because I knew the task needed a more creative skill set to make safety in an unusual situation. So they knew that without a doubt that I had their back. New guys would rotate in and out. Even without hazing, it was a hard life. Far from home, we were the only community each other had. And when the need came for me to climb, I only had one real firm rule on the tower top, which was that we had to have music to make the day pass a little bit faster. But mind you, if Stevie Ray Vaughan was playing Little Wing, well, you just don't interrupt Little Wing. That's the only moment of zen we'd get all day in the hot summer heat of South Carolina. My ground man radioed up, asking how much longer it'd take before we finish for the day. And my newest guy picked up the radio and said, Hey man, it's Little Wing. You just don't interrupt Little Wing. That was the moment I knew he was going to make it. Shortly after that, my phone tipped out of the pouch I'd placed it in for safety. I watched as it sailed down struck a cross member, and kicked out into the cow field from 300 feet up. That's a long way to fall, but somehow it was still playing through our Bluetooth speaker when it hit the ground. Well, on the bright side, looked like we had a job to keep the ground guy busy for now while he waited for us to finish up. So I sent him off to the field to search for my phone, and watching him make circles in the grass, I couldn't help but think it. That sure was a long, long way to fall. Long enough, in fact, that you'd have time to think about your poor life choices on the way down. Fifty feet off the deck, eyeballing the crux of tangerine, 
from that overhanging resting block. The world was silent, save for the wind, a bird, and the occasional whoosh of a car passing above. They were infrequent and irrelevant, given that they rode on a tarmac in another plane of existence, parallel to mine, but not interacting with it. Like two alternate universes with a small portal between, where you can down-climb a few short moves from the parking lot to the cliff's access trail. I couldn't hear the sounds anyway. My mind was in that rarefied sort of clear-minded turbo drive that you can only access when the chips are down and the stakes are high. And every iota of concentration is intrinsically essential to one's continued survival. If I made a bad choice here, I wouldn't have to worry about it for long. Over the years during my exploits in the High Lonesome, I realized one particular lesson that has ubiquitous truth both on and off the wall. While there may be plenty of times in life where it's perfectly reasonable to come unglued and totally freak out, I haven't yet found a single one where it's productive. So when my mind begins to enter that stress state of adrenaline and panic, rather than let it carry me away, I've always paused to center myself, to control my mind my breathing, my pulse, and my body. Over hundreds and thousands of repetitions, I've reconditioned my stress response. Laid off at work? Sudden relationship problem. Car skids on an unplowed patch of snow on the highway. Encountered more difficulties than I'd expected, high off the deck? Doesn't matter. None of it matters. My mind has recalibrated in such a way that my default state in high stress is one of extreme calm and calculation. As suddenly, those are the only things which matter. You can freak out. Nobody would fault you if you did. Especially not once you've passed through the veil between life and death and left us all behind to speak fond remembrance. But if you don't want to pierce that veil, you better rein that shit in rather than get carried away by panic. lowball solos, where the crux is straight off the deck. At least, not when I'm searching for a uh, personal best performance. If a root is V4 off the ground, with a 510 finish, sure, that'd be 512A on a rope. But without one? Eh, that's a 510 solo with a V4 approach hike. Or maybe a V4 with a highball V0 X-rated finish, depending on how you want to slice it. It feels like cheesing out, lying about the accomplishment, an affair born of vanity rather than some higher philosophy which deepens one's understanding of the universe. Those hypothetical 512 moves would be nothing more advanced in style than an ordinary everyday boulder problem. 
Bouldering is respectable, mind you. I'm not knocking that. It's just not a solo. When searching for a personal best, I avoid that gray area between the two. I want the difficulties to be high enough that there is no question. And the difficulties of Tangerine's 90 feet begin about halfway up at roughly the 50-foot mark. I don't know about you, but I sure wouldn't want to swan dive into the boulders from that height. You're not limping away from this one. This was on-site rock climbing. I had no idea what moves lie in wait above me, or what monsters crafted the dimples and edges in the rock above me. I only knew four things. Its name was Tangerine, the grade was 12A, Lohan had suggested it, and Lohan... He definitely doesn't want to kill my ass. To form a proof to solve this calculus problem, those were my only givens. So who the fuck did I think I was? I was the professor. And to quote Descartes, I am a thinking thing. There's one thing I can do. It's think. Given this is 12A, that means no move can be harder than V4. Given that the next moves felt about V4, that meant this was most likely the crux. Therefore, the moves above this point would likely be no harder than V3. Given that Lohan doesn't want me to contract a slight case of fucking dead, that means the moves are likely secure and static. I sat there, shaking and recovering as best I could, eyeballing the line above to divine its character, to understand its soul and smell the air. Does this rock like me? Does it want to be climbed? Or does it host evil in its heart? I saw a line of jugs. One every body length. This changed the calculation. Because I could rest at those jugs and recover my forearms. So now the question was no longer whether I could on-site unknown 512 terrain on command without failure. But rather the problem had changed to whether or not I could on-site this V4 in front of me. Then recover well enough on a jug to continue on-siting repeated sections of V3 with recovery stances in between. Given that I have tremendous recovery ability, this meant all I had to do was be able to reliably on-site three or four back-to-back -back secure V3 sections. There was no place to truly deload the fingers. The wall was overhung, with no real respite from gravity, and the place where I paused to think was in that overhang. I had been sitting there in place, doing all the looking, the thinking, all the thinking, all while alternating my grip on the rock from one hand to the other, attempting to shake out and minimize fatigue. The fact of the situation was that I couldn't stay here indefinitely. Though the position was relatively restful compared to elsewhere en route, it was slowly draining my forearms of precious fuel. Despite this, I knew the task which lay in wait above me was something that I could do, all day, every day. The only question was whether I could still do it, after stopping to think and burn precious energy for so long. Nine long minutes, to be precise.
Twice already, I had ventured into the crux to feel those holds. Twice already, I had retreated with uncertainty. From this perch so high off the ground, retreat to the floor would be easy. But there was a third universe to contend with, and only one single move comprised the one-way boundary between this one and the next. After that one move, reversal would be extremely... unpleasant. Logic can't tell you everything. To a certain degree, you have to trust your instincts. So when they say run, I run. And when they say go, I commit. Fully. I made a deal. It was a baseball rule. I'd had two strikes already. If I retreated a third time, I'm going down. Full commitment was what the job called for. On this next round, depending on how it smelled, I would either fully commit to going up or fully commit to going back down to safety. I believe in having huevos. I believe in boldness. I believe in ex exercising the full capacity of the human mind. Retreating to the floor was perfectly acceptable because I had shown up. I had come to this specific place to test not only my body and mind, but also my wrist calculation and decision-making. So reversing to the floor didn't feel offensive to me. I knew deep down inside that a failed attempt at glory would scar me far less than never having tried at all. And my, how I had tried on this one. It's not the things we do that we often forget or uh, regret the most. It's the things that we didn't do. If I hadn't shown up here at all, I'd regretted it entirely. But to have shown up and tried and failed, that would be okay. So I launched back into the crux move to see how it would feel one last time. This time it smelled good. The game is on. The crux involved one dynamic move from a side pull and large footholds. I stuck this easily and pulled onto the resting block, knowing full well that I had just committed myself entirely to the unknown. But my spirit felt relief, as now there were no unsolved questions to think about. Only one single task, up. Nothing else matters in the world, and so my task my brain, my life had been simplified tremendously. I don't remember much from the next three and a half minutes. I was in a primal state where memory and deliberation were meaningless. The world became nothing more than instinct. My thoughts were formed and executed before I could even ascribe words to their meaning. Silence. Complete and total. Silence. I usually play music through earbuds while climbing. I didn't notice it on the way up, but after I topped out, 
My brain, I realized, had completely shut off the notion of auditory input, just as it had deactivated verbal processing during the execution of these moves. If the hold was bad, I didn't think, oh shit. I just felt an alarm signal and automatically flexed the fingers and activated my core to increase the sticking power and control of the in-flight mechanics. When my hands found a jug, I didn't sigh with relief and think, what good luck? But instead, my brain devoted entirely to the task of monitoring the refuel rate in my forearm. As soon as I hit the point of diminishing returns, I was off again. The final section was about 15 feet of relentless 5.11 climbing. <laughs> or maybe it was 5.9. I honestly couldn't tell. All I knew was that the most pumpy climbing was at the point where I was most pumped. But I also knew that it didn't matter. I instinctively moved faster and fired the moves as speedily as possible. When the walls overhung, the secret beta is to run like hell. Five feet before the top out, was a ledge. I pulled onto it and smelled the canyon air as my body surged and it all hit my forearms at once. On the way up, my mind had known they were busy and that alarming me with fatigue wouldn't be helpful, so it stayed quiet. But once on that ledge, I relaxed knowing that I'd arrived somewhere safe and all the pump hit me like a ton of bricks. Standing casually on two feet, my eyes were just level with the ground, and I could see the tires of my truck only a few yards away. So much work to have traveled so little distance. After mantling the ground level, my auditory cortex sprang back to life, and I heard Stevie Ray Vaughan's rendition of Little Wing playing through the ether, welcoming back to the same reality I was born in. I sat there on the picnic table, eyes fixed across the canyon, staring up and down at the sandstone around me, just existing. At the moment, with no extremes of jubilation or emotion and no thoughts of any kind. You don't interrupt, little wing. And I felt balanced. <laughs> first started climbing, 512 was a mythical number. If you could climb 512, what more could you want out of life? To think that I'd ever on-site 512, <laughs> at the time I didn't understand how wild the world was. That seemed a task for the rarest of rare talents in the universe. 
I had no concept that people could climb the grade without a rope. To contemplate that someone could on-site a 512 free solo? Positively unheard of. That would have been something worth writing in a comic book, a story to delight, but not something possible within the laws of physics. To think that I'd be able to do that? Ever? <laughs> that was beyond even the most fantastical of written stories, too ludicrous to even pen down. Something far from the wildest fever dreams of J.R.R. Tolkien. And yet, here we are. I'd just done it. Huh. I guess that means I have to accept that I'm actually a 512 soloist. There are not many people in this world who have on-site soloed 12A or higher. Elaine Robert has soloed 16 513s, but his maximum on-site solo was 511D. He told me so over Facebook one day while I was inquiring for a little history project, and he's posted it on his social medias too. Mike Reardon did it. Alex Honnold probably has done it. Um, I can't verify for sure or not. There's a rumor out there that he on-sighted Time Wave Zero in Potrero Chico, but he didn't really make a big deal about doing it at all, let alone what style he'd done it in. But uh, beyond that, I don't know. I know there have been some hard solos on British Gritstone, but it's often hard to tell between scary highballs and true proper solos over there. I don't speak E-grades. Regardless, this is my proudest accomplishment, and arguably the most bold. Folks will try to say that I'm a bold climber because of my solos, but nah, fuck off. Soloing is a journey into the extremely well-known and well-rehearsed. There's nothing bold about that. It's just a damn party trick which requires all the physicality of top rope. And it's even easier still, since you're deliberately seeking something well below your pay grade. But this? Tangerine? That was bold. Boldness is venturing confidently into the unknown extremes of life. And this was certainly unknowable and extreme. Looking back now, I was in such an alternated state during the doing of it that it almost feels unreal like a dream born of peyote, not something that actually happened. If I hadn't clipped a camera to an adjacent wall, I don't know that I'd even believe it myself. Of all the things I'd ever achieved, this is the one thing that sits at the top for me. It was the single most sublime moment of pure clarity that I've ever experienced in my life.
All right, well, that, that about wraps it up for today on this trip down memory lane. But for those of you out there who like uh, talking about red pointing and conditions and what have you, uh, the conditions on this day were absolutely prime. 85 degrees and humid. <laughs> Once again, I keep doing everything wrong. Anyhow, if you want to keep up with everything I've got going on, head over to thefreesoloist.com media to see some of the photos, videos, interviews, and articles that I've collected over the years. And feel free to follow the adventure as it continues to unfold on Instagram, at FreeSoloist. Until next time, don't forget to be safe out there. But if you find yourself incapable of being safe due to some temporary or more permanent form of the best kind of madness... Be careful, because life is an inherently dangerous sport. And just in case you thought this had anything to do with big climbing, no way, my friend. This couldn't possibly be any further away from the sponsorship, free gear, jet-setting, paid-travel, ripped-abs world of big climbing. You could be tutoring your friend, Jeremy fucking Carson, on how to repel from the end of a climb and he throws the rope without separating the tails from the ball of flaked cord, while simultaneously missing the toss to the drop-off to ground level. You could pull that chunk of rope back up to the anchor, only to discover that it has tangled itself into a figure 347 knot that resembles a living embodiment of our holy savior, the flying spaghetti monster. And it starts to sink in. You're fucking stranded up here. No food. No water. No bivy gear of any kind. The sun is setting fast. And you're stuck. 30 feet off the ground. And you still wouldn't be as far away from big climbing as this is. 